0: Good to see everyone. So happy to, to be here, to have an opportunity to share God's word with you. Let's go ahead and uh, take communion. If you didn't grab one of these and you want to participate in taking communion, you want to raise your hand and we'll have somebody come by and uh, give you one. I want to share with you a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 1. You know, when we celebrate communion, there's a lot of reasons why we do it, but mainly the Lord left it for the church to celebrate, to remember, it's a time in which we come to the Lord in a special way. He says, "When you when you get together, and we're getting together this morning, Sunday mornings are special. When you get together, uh, you know we're to celebrate the Lord's supper in remembrance of what He did for us." And so, let me read First John chapter one, verses eight and nine. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So this is John speaking to believers. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to us, and he's telling us that if any of us were to say that we have no sin, meaning, hey, Mike, I've been a Christian for 80 years, 20 years, two weeks, and praise God, I, don't, I no longer have any sin, the Holy Spirit John the Apostle would say, you are deceiving yourselves. And I think we've been very clear with this. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you're sinless. It does mean that you should sin less. But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Very, very important. Verse 9. If we confess our sin, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he finishes by saying, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so for most of you, I understand, you know, sometimes I share these verses and and some of these fundamental basic truths. I hope that you never grow weary of those. Um, You know, here, here the Apostle John says, if anyone was to say that they have not sinned, meaning I'm perfect. I'm a good—translated to modern culture, I'm a good person. I don't need to go to church. I don't necessarily need to read the Bible. I don't, I'm not afraid of dying and, and facing God, the perfect judge, because I'm a good person. I think that, that translates to what this is saying. If, if we— deceive ourselves into thinking that there is no sin, there's nothing in us that offends God, and for which he would want to separate himself for all of eternity from us, says we're deceiving ourselves. The Bible says that we're all sinful. And that we all fall short of the glory of God. But verse 9, if we confess our sins, that means if we come into agreement with God that my behavior, my actions, my thoughts are wrong, as he says that they're wrong, I'm confessing I'm speaking what he says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is important for us to understand as we celebrate communion, we take these elements that represent the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and specifically what happened at the cross, that he gave his life as a payment for our sin, so that we can come to him. And as we confess our sin, he is just, and he is faithful. He will never let us down. He's faithful. He will always forgive us of our sins, and he will always cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Isn't that awesome? Some of you guys look a little sad this morning. You should be really happy hearing this stuff. It's serious business, but we should be, as Christians, the happiest people Anywhere in the planet, you don't have to go live in, where's it, Finland? One of the happiest nations in the world. You could be right here in Whittier and be one of the happiest people that anyone knows because though we are sinful, God in his grace sent his only son to take our place at the cross. He's just. He can't just forgive you. He forgives us based on the work of Christ on our behalf at the cross. Somebody had to pay for your sin. The penalty of your sin and mine is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? So as you peel back the first layer, you have the bread. It's unleavened bread. We're going to talk about leaven today a little bit. And it symbolizes, it represents the body, the sinless body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said to take this in remembrance of him. Let's do that together. As you peel back the second layer, you have the Jews that represents the precious blood, the very payment, his life for our sin. Let's take that together. You may be wondering, are we singing a hymn today? We are. We're going to sing a hymn entitled The Old Rugged Cross. Familiar with that one? Let me tell you really quick. It was a a hit back in 1912, it was written by the American evangelist and songwriter George Bernard who was born in 1873 and died in 1958. The Old Rugged Cross, this hymn is a beloved hymn. It's been sung by other Christians for over a century, and we get to do that today. Listen to the lyrics. If you don't know it, if you know it, sing it nice and loud. Let's go ahead and stand.
1: On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. And o sing to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true it's shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share and perish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a crown. I will... I think that was it. We
0: wanted more. That's not the whole thing, but... uh... Now you know, we'll sing it a couple of more weeks, and we'll get it down. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for that old, rugged cross where our Lord Jesus, your only begotten, took our place. Father, I know we hear this often. I've, I've known this by your grace. I've believed it since childhood, but every time I meditate on that, I am blown away by your grace and your love that I cannot fully comprehend which humbles me and drives me to be grateful for your love and grace, your sacrifice. Lord Jesus, thank you. We're grateful now and forever for taking our place, allowing us an opportunity to come to you in faith in what you did for us and experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Grateful for all my brothers and sisters here this morning, for those joining us online. Lead us, guide us, teach us. We pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'll make a quick announcement, which is today we have baptisms. You're saying we just had some last week. That's right. Uh, By God's grace, we have at least two people Dario and Gil, I believe, are getting baptized this morning. So we're super grateful, especially this section right here. Um, you, you probably know Dario. He's been with us and his family for, for about a year, a little over a year. And Gil, many of you, Monique's son, have, many of you saw him grow up here in the church. Uh, had a chance to, to not a, a big chance to interact with him, but I'm looking forward to that. And uh, we're praying for you guys, and we're grateful to be able to be part of your, your baptism this morning. So at the end of the service, we will, we'll have a, a song at the end, actually, and then we'll all, that'll give, that'll give you guys an opportunity to go and get ready while they're doing the last song, and then once we finish here, we'll all transfer over to our East Building campus. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really <laughs> great. I like that. And, uh, and then we'll have our baptisms there, okay? This morning, I want to read a section from Luke. We will continue our messages out of Luke 13. And I hope to finish Luke 13, or that's the plan. That's what we're going to be doing. So these last 32 minutes, we're going to look at Luke chapter 13. As you you probably know, on Sunday mornings, we're going through the entire gospel according to Luke. And so chapter 13, this morning, we're going to start... We're going to start in verse 18 and go all the way to the end, verse 35. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God. There's much to say about the kingdom of God, from Old Testament all the way to New Testament. Uh, We've mentioned some things, and what we're going to talk about the kingdom of God here is going to be somewhat limited to this section, about what this section that our Lord Jesus Christ speaks about, the kingdom of God, that's what we're going to explore this morning, and so I'm going to share three points with you. I would, I, I would love to think that everybody here, I'm not going to look at you, that everybody here has a handout. The handout has the outline. It has verses that I'm going to use so you can take them home, follow the outline as I speak, or later on kind of go back and, and go through it, go through some of these verses that we're going to talk about. Uh, we want to encourage you to take responsibility for your, for your reading, for your studying of the Word, for your, for your own personal discipleship when it comes to the Word of God. We have to be in the Word, beloved. We must. So the kingdom of God, Luke 13, 18 through 35. Before I read it, I'm going to share the main point with you, which is that God is glorified in His kingdom by those who belong to it. God is glorified in His kingdom, and He's glorified by those who belong to His kingdom. And so the question for me right off the bat would be, are you part of God's kingdom? Do you belong to God's kingdom? Do you know what we mean by that? I, I pray that this message would, would help on that endeavor. We want to make sure that you are part of God's kingdom, that kingdom is that, that, the king, that you are part of the kingdom of God, which means that Christ is your king. that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. That means that at one point in your life, you came, you heard the gospel. And by God's grace, he allowed you to come to repentance of your sin and to turn to Christ for forgiveness and for salvation. That ushers you into the kingdom of God, where Jesus Christ is now Lord of your life. He is the king. So let me read, starting in verse 18, it says, and this is actually a continuation of uh, the message that we, we talked about, Last week, um, that talked about repentance. So verse 18 says, "Then he said, "What is the kingdom of God like?" This is Jesus saying, talking to people saying, what, "How do I tell you what the kingdom of God is? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, try to imagine the people listening to the Lord. Oh, he's going to describe the kingdom of God. He talks about a mustard seed. Verse 20, and again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And he went throughout the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, Are there few who are saved? What a great question. Lord, are there few that are saved? And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you're from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and west and from the north and south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. And on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I know that was a long reading. If you have a a handout, you'll see that the title is the kingdom of God. I want to share three points with you. And we're we're going to complete this phrase. Christ teaching about his kingdom shows us three things, right? So Christ's teaching about his kingdom shows us one, let's get right to it, the kingdom compared. So as, as the Lord is teaching these people about his kingdom, he begins to compare the kingdom of God. And what does he compare it to? He says, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? And then he, sa- he gives two parables, or two, yeah, two parables. And the first one is that of a mustard seed. The mustard seed is known for being a very tiny seed that actually grows to a big, big tree. And he says, verse 19, It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in the garden, and it grew and became large, a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And then the, the second parable about how he compares or likens the kingdom of God is that of leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. So we might sit back and say, like, what is he saying? Why? why, why?" If you really think about it, it's not a. I I would say, and most people would say, listening to him, that's not a great explanation. Like, I want the details. Like, what is the kingdom of God? What are you talking about? When you started your 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 ministry, you said, "Behold, uh, the kingdom of God is here." The uh, John and everybody would preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so now people want to know, like, what exactly is the kingdom of God? And he says these two parables and. People are probably maybe scratching their heads, and maybe we're scratching our heads. Why would he say that? It sounds like he had a great opportunity to describe the kingdom of God. Couldn't he do a better job of describing the kingdom of God? After all, it is his kingdom. And he said this for a reason. And part of it has to do with, think about what's happening here. John the, the Baptist, his apostles, himself, is preaching about the ushering in of the kingdom of God, which... In the average Jewish mind at that time, they had something very different in mind. I think most of you know that. All the prophecy of God's kingdom had to do with God being the Jewish king once again and destroying all the enemies and ushering in this time of peace and prosperity. And what you have right now as you're reading during those times is you have a Roman empire that is strong and vibrant and the Jewish nations find themselves in subjection to this Roman government. And so many of them, the Jewish people that that believed legitimately that they were waiting for the coming Messiah, they were expecting more of a military commander that would come and usher God's kingdom, destroy and overthrow the Roman government, and just, you know, bring in the wealth and prosperity. And but what in fact what you had and what people were saying is wait a minute, Jesus? The carpenter's son? You're the king that we've been waiting for? You're saying, like, like, we're in the kingdom? The kingdom is now? You've ushered it in? And they're looking at him with his 12 disciples and a crowd of mixed people in there. And, and to the average person then, they would say, wait a minute. I thought there was going to be a lot more to the kingdom of God. I'm quite disappointed here. And a lot of people were. That's why they, in part, rejected him. They didn't like what Jesus was offering as the kingdom of God. And so the Lord gives these two parables, and, and at this moment, he's sharing this to, I believe, illustrate this point. He says, it's like a mustard seed. Now, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed? And the point of the mustard seed analogy is that the mustard seed starts very small, but it grows into something much larger in which many other people, in this case, in the, in the parable, the birds come in to its branches and they nest. They make that their home. And the Lord is saying, in, I believe in essence, or at least in part, the kingdom of God is here. But it is, in, at least in your eyes, starting off very small. It's Christ, it's his disciples. It's, it's ushering the, the time of the church that began with only 120 people. But he says it's like a mustard seed. It it might be small right now in your eyes, but it's going to grow to something big. And he's almost preparing them and teaching them. You're expecting this military commander with a uh, million angels to come down and destroy everyone and and usher in this time. And in fact, you should think of the kingdom of God as a mustard seed that's going to grow into something big. And then the same thing with uh, with the leaven. It says that it's... I mean, this is not what I would use. This is not the analogies that I would use to talk about the kingdom of God. But he says the kingdom of God is like leaven. Like leaven? Yeah, which leaven. Like that, what a woman would take and hide in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. The thing about leaven or yeast is that it's you only use a little bit, right? You know, one of the things my mom just passed last September. And one of the coolest things that we used to do is we used to go to her house on Saturday mornings. And she used to make for us tortillas, harina, flour tortillas. And she would get the flour, and uh, I tried to learn so many times. Uh, We kind of got it down. We're still exploring trying to get it down and continue that tradition. But one of the things that you put in that flour is a little bit of yeast, a little little bit of leaven. and just a tiny bit. And you may have a big pot of flour, but you only put a little bit of of leaven, and what the leaven does, it, it permeates and it, it affects all of the flour to the point where you can no longer separate the yeast or the leaven from the flour. It just becomes part of it, and it allows it to for you to be able to cook it so that your tortillas don't come out looking like our unleavened bread that we take when we do communion. And I believe the Lord's teaching here is that the kingdom of God is not this huge outside thing that's just going to come and boom be set on your lap. He's saying the kingdom of God is like leaven that permeates the dough or the flour that eventually becomes part of everything that you do or everything that there is. And I think for us, a big application for us is that the kingdom of God is not when we come to church, I think you all understand that. I'm going to go to church because I want to experience the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something that begins small in our hearts as we repent and confess Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. You're ushered into God's kingdom You are now part of the kingdom, and it begins to permeate everything in your life. That's why we say this over and over. You can't be be a Sunday church Christian. There is no such a thing. You are a member of God's kingdom, and you're never outside of God's kingdom. Everywhere you go, you take with you God's kingdom. You are in God's kingdom if he is the king of your heart, and it needs to permeate everything about you. You know, how you play your sports, what you watch on TV, how you interact with people, how you behave at work, how you work at your job, how you behave outside, what you do for entertainment. All of that stuff needs to be part, or the kingdom of God needs to be part of everything that you do and everything that you are. It's not something that is separate from who we are or what we do. There's much more to say that. Let me share a couple of verses with you. John 18.36. When he's with in the presence of Pilate, he's being tried. John 18.36, Jesus answers and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But, my, but now my kingdom is not from here. Very interesting. It is a spiritual kingdom. And we believe that he will one day usher a physical kingdom. But right now, you and I, if Christ is your king, you are part of God's kingdom. Colossians 1.13. It says, Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. If you are a Christian, it's because your sins have been forgiven, and you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We belong to the kingdom of Christ. So Christ's teaching about His kingdom shows us the kingdom compared. The Lord Jesus compares the kingdom with these two parables. And I want to share a second point with you, which is that Christ's teaching about His kingdom shows us the kingdom cost there's a cost. He compares it, but there's also a cost to be part of God's kingdom. And he says in verse 24 in chapter 13, it says, um, first, somebody asks them a great question. You know, they're listening to the Lord, and to many people, they reject them, and, and, and they don't like what he's saying. And so somebody thinks about asking this question. He says, Lord, are there few who are saved like, what's going on? Like, are, are, are you saying that, you know, there's a popular belief that everyone is saved, that we're all God's children, and of course, because we have a physical life, and God is the author of all life, you can make the case that, yeah, God is our creator, and in a way, he's our father. He's given us this physical life, but it's clear in the Bible that not everyone is saved. There would have been no reason for Christ to come and die at the cross if we were all saved, if we didn't need a Savior, if we weren't lost and dead in our sins and trespasses. So he asked the question, Lord, are there few who are saved? And in essence, the Lord says, yes. He says, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. See the picture there? There's a gate to enter into the kingdom, and it's not a big electric wrought iron gate that opens by itself and just lets everybody in with, you know, sensors. That's just, you know, when you come out of, like, one of those gated communities, you just get close to the gate, and it senses that you're there and just opens up for you. That is not what the gate into the kingdom is. It's actually a narrow gate. It's small. It says strive. Don't assume that because you grew up in church and your parents are Christians, that you're automatically going to be ushered into the kingdom. Strive to get into that narrow gate. And and you know enough to know that it's not talking about let's work really hard to earn our salvation. But he's saying the gate for the kingdom is narrow. And he says, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You might be saying, like, wait a minute. I thought God wants people in his kingdom. Why is it that he's saying that there's going to be people that want to enter into his kingdom and they're not going to be able to? They're going to be rejected. That sounds very contrary to our cultural belief about who Christ is, who, you know, he's love for everybody and, you know, he's not going to send anyone to hell because we're all good people and he understands that we're just human. No, Christ's teaching over and over is exclusive. Are there few that are going to be saved? Yes, few. Few. Many are called and few are chosen. Over and over in the Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament, you see that those that belong in Christ's kingdom are only a few. When God's judgment came down in the old world, in the times of Noah, I don't know how many millions of people were alive at the time, but only eight were saved. Noah and his family, everybody else that didn't know how to swim, drowned, and those who did know how to swim, also drowned. Everybody died because of God's judgment, and only eight people. Christ only chose twelve apostles. The church began with only 120 people. You know, we should never be too concerned about ah, are we ever going to have a mega church? I don't. I I never said that. Elders don't talk about that. Just, just for the record. But why don't we have more people? I don't know. Why isn't everybody here this morning that should be here? I don't know. Some of us has good reasons. I would say most of us don't. Strive to get into the narrow gate. How are you striving? How would you say that you're striving to make sure that you are in the narrow gate, in the narrow way? It's not just a narrow gate. It's also a narrow way. Christianity is not something that you can just fall into. It's not just something that, oh, you know, I just happened to live in Whittier and boom, there was this great church called Cross Point. So I just fell in one day and there I was, worshiping with and 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 now I'm in the kingdom. No, that's not how it happens. Getting into the kingdom is very much going against the grain of this world. There's always going to be a few. Strive to enter through the narrow gate for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. They're going to come and knock and say, Please open up. We used to hang out with you. We saw you. We heard your teachings. We saw what you did. We were there. Remember? And the Lord's going to say, Get away from me. I never knew you. But we were there. Yeah. But there was never a relationship. I used to go to Cross Point. I was there for a, a hundred years. Yeah. So what? I never knew you. But I, I was a preacher. So? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Is he the Lord of your life? I heard a preacher say this. He goes, you know, I don't ask people if they've accepted Jesus in their heart. One, because that's not even biblical. He goes, but huh, anybody could just say like, yeah, I did. He, sa- he said, and feel free to steal this as I have. He goes, I ask people, does Jesus live in you? That's the question. Not do you go to Cross Point? Do you go to Cross? Yeah, I go to a Christian church. Who who cares? So do a lot of other people that are not striving to get into the kingdom or into the narrow walk through the narrow gate. Does Christ live in you? Is he the king of your life? Is he the Lord of your life? Or very simply put, or are you just living your life? According to your own will, and you give God your leftovers and whatever you feel like. It's really simple. Do I strive? Do I honor my king? Do I obey my king? Is he the first thing on my mind in the morning? I want to honor him. I want to follow him. I want to obey him. Or is it just about you? You don't have to be a serial killer to go to hell. We are already under condemnation. We must be saved. We must come to repentance. We must hear the gospel. And it will be God's work that opens your understanding. I'm telling you, you could be, you know, when when I give to the communion, we share some of these verses. I know that some of you have heard it 50 times. And unfortunately, I, I would have to believe that there are some of you that have heard the gospel message 100 times. And you have not entered that narrow gate. Christ is not the king of your life. And the question is, what are you waiting for? Well, striving. I'm already stressed enough, Mike. I have stress at work. I have stress in the family. I have little kids, don't you know? I know. And now I have to strive in my religion? Can I just go to church, kick back, and hear the preacher, and maybe just uh, feel good for a little bit? No. No. I would be doing you such a disservice not to share this with you. Strive to enter through the narrow gate for many. He's answering the question, are few saved? Yes, because many will come on that day and they will be rejected. You can't just come to the kingdom and say, I'm here, Lord. Roll out the red carpet. You have to strive. You have to be very concerned with your relationship with God. Matthew 10, 37. What is the cost of the kingdom? Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is he saying? What does it cost to follow Christ? He says, it costs you everything. I don't like to be critical. I hope I don't sound critical all the time. But when people say from the pulpit, under what they believe is the authority of Scripture, say, won't you give God a chance? What do you have to lose? Oh, you mean it won't cost me anything to follow Christ? I could just say, yeah? Yeah. And I hear people say that. What do you have to lose? Come on. I read Scripture, as I encourage you to do, and what I see in Scripture is Christ saying, not, hey, want to follow me? What is there to lose? Just give me a try. If you don't like it, get your money back. I see him saying, you want to follow me? And if you're not striving, get away from me. I never knew you. You want to come to me on your own terms? You cannot. You must come through the Son. And the Son says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You can't just come to Christ. Now, don't panic. It's God's work. What's your role? Humble yourself before him. Repent. Confess. Do the hard thing. Strive. Don't assume. Deuteronomy 6.5, what does the kingdom cost? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. That's known as a Shema, part of the Shema in the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord with everything, meaning you are not to give yourself to anything else. He says, if you love your mother or your father more than me, if you love your kids more than me, what? I've had people tell me, if anything was to happen to my kids, I don't know what would happen. Guess what? All kinds of stuff are going to happen to your kids. And I understand that, humanly speaking, as a dad, don't think that I don't love my kids, all right? I do. But the Lord says, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me. Meaning, the cost of discipleship and following him is to be able to say, Lord, I love you with everything. And by comparison, nothing compares to you. Why? Because you are my king, you are my lord. And all of my devotion is to you. Christ's teaching about his kingdom shows us the kingdom compared, the kingdom cost, and lastly, the kingdom's compassion. I love this. Sorry, the king's compassion. I'm, you might be thinking like, man, Mike sounds pretty harsh. Is that how God is? God is not like me. I'm so, you, don't ever look at me as a representation of Christ. I'm not claiming to be Christ's representation in a special sense. I am in the sense that all of us as children are. We're ambassadors of his, and we're witnesses of his. But look at what Luke thirteen thirty four says. The Lord Jesus, towards the nation of Israel... Who are they? These are the people that are constantly rejecting him and persecuting him, speaking evil things about him, claiming that he casts out demons by the power of Satan. These are the people that he knows are going to turn him over to be crucified. And what does he say? He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often? I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings but you were not willing. And he's weeping as he says this. He weeps over his people. Psalms 103 verse 8 says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Aren't you glad about that? The king's compassion. Colossians 3.12. Because our king is compassionate... And, we, and he is our king and we belong in his kingdom. We are his children. I want to end with this verse, Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as the elect of God, as the children of God, as those that belong in God's kingdom, holy and beloved, he says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, compassion, beloved. Where is your compassion? If Christ is your king and Christ lives in you and Christ lives In his kingdom is a compassionate king. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Do people know you as a merciful individual, as a kind person, as a humble person, as a meek person, as a person with long suffering? I'm sure none of us fit that description perfectly. I hope that all of us can look at a description like this and say, not even close, but I am not the person that I used to be. And I repent of my behavior. I I confess to the Lord. And when I do mess up and go back to my old self, I humble myself before him and I confess my sins and I trust that he is just and faithful to forgive me of all my sins and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. But he is my king. The kingdom of God, beloved. Serious stuff. Wonderful stuff. As children of God, are many saved? The Lord will say, No, not many. There's seven, I'm fascinated by this. There's seven billion people alive in this planet right now. Seven billion people. How many are saved? I don't know. But I don't think it's many. I don't think it's many. So, why would a gathering like this be special? Because if we are part of God's kingdom and Christ is our King and there aren't that many saved, this is a special group. This is a special group that gets together on a Sunday morning and lifts up their voices and, and claims to uh, cries out to the Lord in gratitude for that old rugged cross and the, all the other hymns that we sang, the songs that we sing. Our hearts need to be lined up with God's kingdom. We need to recognize that God's kingdom is the priority in our lives, that He is our king, and our lives need to reflect that. That is, these children of the kingdom go out into our schools and our workplaces, in our families, in our communities, that the kingdom of God is ushered in, and it's spread out so that other people can come. And make their nest. I'm so grateful for, for all of you who are new. Last week uh, when we were in our East Campus, uh, we hadn't had a service there for two years. Uh, almost three, I think. And I asked how many of you have never had a, been in a church service in this building. And I think more than half the hands went up. I, see, I consider that a big blessing. If you're new to our church, you're a blessing. You're encouraging to us knowing that God would entrust us and bless us with new people that we can grow with, that we can disciple, and as we do that, we will see him use us to further his kingdom. So let's be about our Father's business. Let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he promises that all the other things that we need will be added to us. He needs to be our priority. Gracious Father, King of Heaven, thank you for our blessings Thank you for everything that we get to experience. Thank you for the salvation of our souls. Father, we pray for forgiveness for our sins and trespasses. We thank you for your faithfulness and your justice and what you did for us at the cross of Calvary through your son. I'm grateful for Gil. I'm grateful for Dario who are taking the step of obedience and being baptized and allowing us to be part of that journey We are encouraged. We put them in your hands. We pray for them and their families. We pray for your protection and blessing. We pray that you would encourage them to get closer to you, that they would be great students of your word, that they would plug into our church, that they would make new connections, that they would uh, just trust you in their journey as they put you first in their lives. We thank you for them. We ask that you would dismiss us with your blessing. We honor and glorify your holy name. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. We'll see you next door after the song.
2: Church, awesome, Let's finish with this last song right here, church. I search the world. And fill me. Mines empty, praise treasures and fame. You turn bones into armies You turn seas into highways You're the only one who can You turn graves into gardens You turn bones into armies You give planes into highways you're the only one who can. You're the only one who can. You're the only one.